Hey, what's up, guys? Lucas Burnley here. You are listening to the Edge and Flow podcast, where we talk about all things knife industry, life, uh, personal improvement. Uh, <laughs> I don't mm. know, speeding up, slowing down, sharpening, sharpening. Uh, mm. Yeah. So I'm here with my co-host DJ Schwartz, and uh, yeah, let's get it rolling, yeah. man. How's your day going? Uh, it's been a good day, actually. Shipped a bunch of knives. It always feels good to ship knives. It just to see the order list kind of shrink and yeah. see product go out the door. That's a culmination that feels good. Yeah. So closure. Pretty good push today. And nice. uh, um, we just had a couple of top level announcements actually to start this pod. So Let's do it. We have launched Patreon a few weeks back. Yep. Really excited about that. Got a group of guys in there and uh, they've been really awesome commenting, asking questions, all that good stuff. And we recently rolled out a Discord, which is a conversational platform. And we sort of struggled with how to assimilate it with the Patreon and how to have people migrating through Patreon into Discord. And then it occurred to me after looking in Patreon, there were people using it as if it was like a Discord because it now has these community chat functions, which might be kind of new to Patreon. I'm not sure. Um, But it, it made me wonder if perhaps Discord has become like redundant and maybe an overcomplication of the uh, just network that we're trying to build. So we went ahead and discarded the Discord. <laughs> and yeah, for uh, now, for Probably. now. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, but, but the Patreon chats are in the place of that. So if you want to like chat, um, we've seen a lot of activity this week and I'm really excited about that. And there's been some interesting conversations happening. That's happening inside of Patreon and it, they have a cool app now. Um, so I wanted to thank the people that are in there. Uh, we have one question to answer from a guy in there. And then, uh, yeah, just point out that there's some some cool stuff going on. Yeah, this, was, this is a fun one. I think actually this is a case of, I want to say like me reading the room wrong. I don't think it's that. I think it is. Discord is an amazing platform. Okay. Uh, it, it like hits all of the high points for me as far as like what we're trying to do, which is it's super easy to access. It's good at building community. Um, it is like very user friendly. Right. Um, and it's separate from a lot of like social media streams, which like is more and more, kind of important for me on a personal mm-hmm. level, just like make, if I go on Instagram, I stay on Instagram a lot of times. Like I just get, I go down the rabbit hole, mm-hmm. but I had a preconceived notion of like how we would use discord. That was probably had started before we even really started like looking at that as an option for, or like Patreon as an option, right? Cause mm-hmm. I wanted to mm-hmm. do a discord it's a good, it's a good process. It's not a good process for us now. And you call, you like called it like perfectly. You're like, this feels, this is like adding a step. It's an inefficiency that can be like handled in a more streamlined way. And as soon as you said that, like we killed it and it was, I instantly realized how much easier it was. Well, hopefully it's, it feels that way from the user side. So if you guys are using Patreon, if you're communicating with, with us in there, be sure to, to pop in there. Let us know how it works. Uh, the, I think the whole point, too, that we're getting across is like this is a work in progress. And we're just <laughs> yeah, we're having to we're having to set this up because like from a social media standpoint, things are ever changing. Yeah. And we are 
we've been at this over a year now, the podcast, but as far as this more community focused side, that's kind of a new thing we want to integrate. So yeah, yeah, just bear with us and I hope you guys tag along and enjoy what's going on. I want you to, I want you to dive into a little bit of the thought, like around social media, like why do we not just want to use our standard media channels in relation to the pod? So because there's you, a reason you hit the nail right on the head when you talked about Instagram, which is Instagram. I am bummed to say has turned into like a dopamine addiction machine. And I think I'm as vulnerable as anybody else. And I think we all know how that feels like you can't even passingly look into that app without like getting drawn in for 15 minutes it's crazy how it works like that yeah um and it didn't used to be that way uh it used to be less algorithmic and more forum like um and it's i found it where i'm actually running out of capacity to manage social medias yes um and with something like discord or patreon or something like that you nailed it which is like less uh, there's a great phrase. It's there's more signal and less noise. Yeah. And the signal that you're actually trying to tune into is there and you don't have the ads. You don't have the, you know, viral TikTok like stuff that's just smattering the whole thing. Um, and so I just I'm trying to have quality conversations with quality people that follow us that are not mixed in with basically digital drugs you know well and also like you and i have had enough of a social media presence that there's a lot of noise just in our our just in our inboxes and so for me i know that like i want to be able to talk about topics as they relate to the pod but i'm also wanting to protect like my time and realizing that like we can put out a podcast every week and we can have conversations we will get questions and like conversations will start around that. But I don't want that to grow into more time on social media specifically, which is, I think why Patreon makes sense in this case. Cause it's kind of like directed, like you and I can Mm -hmm. basically like go in there, have conversations around this, but not have to like also see 10 other messages in my DMS. Yeah. Yeah. So there you yeah, go. That's absolutely the case. And so I do see that we have a question in there that we should answer. Um, so I'm going to click on that. It is Will from Maine. Looks like, I think it's Spruce Hill Blades, I believe. But he was asking about going from a fixed blade to a folding knife design. Any advice for um, going into tapping into certain markets as well? But I think he's talking about the move design wise from fixed blade to folder. That's a fun one. Yeah. Because I think you and I have two different perspectives or at least two different Mm -hmm. uh, areas of expertise on this. I went from folders to fixed blades. I went the other way. true. But you're (laughs) going from pure design too. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, Can I, can I start this one? Do it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Honestly, I think a big part of it has to do with how he's making knives. Mm-hmm. So if I'm not mistaken, he's already like uh CNC capable. He's like I, designing in CAD. I'm actually not hundred percent sure. On I that. believe. Um, yeah. and okay. So here, here's where it goes, right? Um, if you are a fixed blade maker and you want to move into folders and you are hand making everything, um, there is a chance that there are a few pieces of machinery that will benefit you, but you can basically do it with, your standard, like if you have a bandsaw, a drill press and a grinder, 
you can make a folder. Mm-hmm. It is hard to make folders effectively, but that's not the point. Um, mm-hmm. If he is looking at this more from like a product line standpoint, like, hey, I am producing knives. Uh, I'm a working shop and I've got like numbers going out. The switch to having knives coming off of that type of scenario, like new fixturing, it becomes more complicated. But I would say that like, regardless, either way, number one thing would just be to get all of the data on how to build folders correctly from a historical standpoint. I was going to say the same thing. I think okay. he's on the right track in asking us about what we know about folder design because yeah. I think step one is to ask a lot of questions because yep. I can say from experience, folders are a little bit more complicated geometrically than they appear. Yep. Um, lock rock and lock stick and all these little things that don't necessarily prevent some, a knife from folding and locking, but can make right. it struggle to be smooth and have the action that you want. Um, they're avoidable pitfalls. And so the first, I'm just going to throw out there just to be like specific is imagine your stop pin and your lock, whatever it is, whether it's a axis style or a, you know, a lock arm or compression lock, whatever it is, you need to have the two forces from this, the pin and the lock interface driving against the pivot barrel so that they become a point of like a triangle of essentially like opposing forces. It is possible to design a lock where the pivot barrel is not really part of a triangle and those forces oppose each other from the stop pin and the lock. And then the barrel is allowed to float. I hope that makes some sense. Um, but having a like triangular forces that create a three-way bind between those three things actually lower the requirements for like tight tolerances a lot Mm -hmm. so if you look at like inexpensive folders like uh like the overland from crkt you know it's like an affordable mass market manufactured knife like it does not have lock rock at all and it's not necessarily because they're holding tight tolerances it's because the geometry is such that the pivot barrel can be quite widely tolerance and it will not still function yeah and so it's it's the bigger the triangle and the more like you don't want them in a line if that makes sense it's a little hard to explain without an image but yep um, well and this this to this point like just go by the modern tactical folder from bob terzola like that's as far as i'm concerned that's like step one because Mm -hmm. He, the way that he wrote that book and the uh, concepts and techniques that he explains in it, regardless of how you are actually going to manufacture a knife, that gets you from like point A to point B. That is like the logic chasm that you need Mm -hmm. to be able to understand. And there are a lot of folders that are being made that are like actually not great, Mm -hmm. where you've got a lot of horsepower to build the thing. But it it is lacking in the design side. Yeah. So like I say, I say to start with, like r- figure out a couple books. Bob T's book is amazing. Yeah. Um, Alan Alishawis did one with Blade. I mean, there's a few. Just get the general concepts. Um, past that, it's just a knife, and that it, it's weird to me because like on the custom side, you'll have a knife maker who's like making very nice fixed blades, 
everything is like good from like a proportion fit finish, like, you know, scale standpoint, and they'll make a folder and it's like a stumpy brick. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, man, it's still just a knife. Like you, you clearly see how to make this thing that is attractive. And it's like all of it go like goes out the window. Yeah. Over three things, which is like, you know, lock, stop and pivot. Yep. Just a knife. Yeah. And, and another like very specific thing is being thin is way favorable in the folder world. Yes. And it's way less favorable in the fixed blade world. So if you're in the habit of one or the other, like start to Ooh. think about that. Don't um, make stumpy bricks. Yeah, exactly. You you almost can't go too thin on a folder. Like there's going to be some people that are bothered by being too thin, but the market generally likes thin in the folder yeah, I'm side. Thinking, like I'm now thinking of some very like specific, uh, counter arguments to that like yeah. there, obviously there are people who like yeah. very beefy yeah. thick folders so like but, ultimately it has to fit your design style mm-hmm. i'm i'm referencing like just it's like general my thing where like all of a sudden they forget to contour scales if they're contouring on their fixed blades and it's weird to me yeah yeah go buy bob's book yeah start there yeah so that that is a can of worms so i i, I feel like we kind of approached it but yeah Keep asking questions, man, for sure. I don't sure. think we can dive into the markets question without more info. I posted that on the, yeah. in that thread too. Yeah. I think we need a little more detail. Yeah, we can continue that also in the chats over yeah. there too. That's a good, good question. Um, so one other announcement, just kind of top line item. Uh, I did launch the CAD course. So designincad.com. And I'm currently a student of this course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, sir. Check it out, guys. Um, we talked about it so much last week that I don't want to, I don't want to kill wanna, a whole bunch of time, but I just want to let you guys know you can, you can check it out. Okay, good. It's good stuff. All right. Uh, you threw something on our list here Ooh. to talk about. Ooh. Okay. This is like, this is two things. Um, we got half measures. Okay. I wanted to talk about that. And I want to bring up something that I think is super relevant right now to like both customers and makers which one should i start with let's talk about half measures half measures um man when are half measures like an acceptable method to get things done so i've been thinking a lot about this because we touched on this a long time ago on the pod very briefly and I've been thinking a lot about it because I, I did a lot of what I would call half measures when I was setting up my current shop in order to become operational as soon as possible. And I've been reviewing that idea and trying to decide whether all of those decisions were good or not. Okay. Um, I, think a, I think half measures can be good if they produce a reliable outcome. But if the compromise is like maybe it's not as efficient, maybe it's not as premium, maybe maybe the results aren't exactly what you're looking for, but at least it's reliable. Um, From my standpoint, like I place reliability so high on the totem pole that um, I just have several processes that to me feel like half measures, but they have done their job because they have been reliable. I guess that's where I'm coming from. I, I was trying to think about this. Like I think in my brain, I equate half measure with half asked. Hmm. And I'm actually not sure that they're the same thing. Hmm. So half-assed, obviously, immediately negative connotation. Just means you didn't do the job. Yeah. Okay. 
I think if you have perfectionist tendencies, it's very easy to look at anything you do that is not at 100% either like output or capacity or capability as like a failure. Mm -hmm. Okay. Recently, I've started to look at the, the idea of like half measures in maybe like a slightly different light, which is that it's like, <clears throat> it might be a solution that is temporary in nature, but needs to be made. Right. Um, I guess there's probably, there's another way to look at that, which is just like it, they're just like smaller steps or like, you know, mm -hmm. something kind of ev like evolving but it's not what it feels like to me when I make one of those decisions. Um, yeah. So recently, the reason that this came up was I am building products for the Kentucky Custom Knife Show. We talked about that a little bit. And I'm not going. I'm sending product. I'm not going. What I'm seeing is that in my brain, I feel like it is a half measure. And I'm trying to kind of figure out like, overall if it's a positive if there's like if it's like net positive gain mm -hmm. um it's and it's tricky and this is like the first situation where i've been in recently where i'm really looking at it being like proportionally like it's great like i have product at the show uh i know that i've got a lot of customers at the show um and friends that are like excited to see product I love the show. So I want to support it. I have the means of like being able to send the product and like, um, you know, Chris is going to run the table. So it's like having a hand in a show and like being part of the community. But I don't think it's like a 50, 50 split. Like I almost feel like I'm doing 80% of the work on the front end, but then by not physically being there, maybe I'm getting like 30% of the, like community return, mm, like even yeah. for like just on my side, even. And it's an interesting mm -hmm. thing. Cause I'm like, how do you, at what point do you just say like, no, is it a 50%? Is it, yeah. is it 80% where you're right. like, I can't do this the way that I want to do it. So it's not worth it. Mm -hmm. Um, it's tricky. Yeah. That I think it also ventures into the, have you ever heard of the toolbox fallacy? No. Um, half measure can mean a lot of things, but the toolbox fallacy is that you can't start a job until you have your, all the tools necessary to do the job. Incorrect. Um, and <laughs> right. <laughs> but the, they call it, they call it the fallacy of the toolbox in that you have to start the project to know yes. what tools you need. And if yeah. you never start, Ooh. then if you're waiting for all the tools to be in the toolbox, like you'll never start. Um, uh I think that's the general fallacy that that um, is describing. I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say that that one is gonna hit real hard with uh, all of my ADHD folks out there because that ties perfectly into perfectionist tendencies, which is I'm gonna wait till everything is in place to start the thing, and with executive function issues, that is insanely hard. Mm-hmm. So it's like you can't actually you have a very hard time actually getting the things in place. And you also have a hard time starting when they're not in place. Mm -hmm. I've never heard of that. I'm going to look that up. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and it, I guess in, in this situation right now, this is this is relating to. Like end business, this is like, you know, this is like 
it's shipping product almost. It's like the end game, like going to a show, making product. Like, why do I go to a show? It's to see people. Mm-hmm. So as soon as you remove that, does the value of having product at a show go away? On one hand, I know it doesn't because mm-hmm. you're still maintaining a presence. The question is if like, if the time is worthwhile or could have been used better, or like in my case, do I make a decision and I say, Hey, I know my, I'm really time leveraged. I can't do the show the way that I want to from a product standpoint. But if I say I'm going to take half as much product, but physically be there, Mm -hmm. do I get more gain or do my collectors get more gain or the industry get more gain? If then, if I make a hundred percent of the product, but I'm not there. Right. And I've been like, I just keep running this through different processes in the shop and I'm like, and this is weird. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. That was my thought. Yeah, no, I think you and I are on different tracks as far as what we're thinking of when we say half measure. I know. I think that definitionally they're the same thing, but we're like, uh, I'm just trying to align my thoughts with what you're describing. So in a, in a, in a situation where you're limited in either time or money resources yep. wise, either you completely opt out of something yes. or you half measure it because you cannot full measure everything. Right. So the question is, when do you, when you realize you cannot go all in, do you go all out by default or when do you decide to half measure? And what is that percentage? Yeah. Like, yeah. And I know this is like super heady kind of like (laughs) thought process around this. It's easy with tools. Like, Hey, I need it. There's a job that I need to get done. Um, the nice machine that does it is $25,000. But I can buy, I can buy the Harbor Freight version for a thousand dollars and I can do the work for six months. That's actually very easy. Yeah. 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 When it starts to go past that into time resources, uh, things like that, I think it gets harder. And that's, that's why I'm thinking as I'm talking here, because I was thinking more from the tools and like, and physical asset standpoint, which is like you said, it's easier to approach that because it's more numbers compressors can, are probably the most common like half yeah, measure yeah you know, like i want i know i want good clean air i just need uh, a lot I'm of going air to home in depot. a metal tank yeah. yeah i need air in a metal tank yeah right yep. yep and then 15 years later you're like still using that yep yep um okay that brings me to my next kind of related thought um Dude, are there too many knife shows? Um, I have not historically gone to very many knife shows besides the big ones. So I, so I want you. I want. I want to hear what you see. Um, I'm hearing about a lot of knife shows for sure, especially on like the high end custom side. You know, you got like California Custom Knife Show, Kentucky Pacific Northwest. Like, there's basically a show every month. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it has the likelihood of being fatiguing. I think it probably is. Uh, I think it, add, it it does grow the market in that if it's in the neck of the woods of someone who's not going to fly or go more than like one state away, it could add a bigger audience um, if you're willing to travel to f- get to those people. Um, but so that's a metric that I would, if anybody is listening to this, that is a show promoter, I would love to know the metric of how many local 
yeah. ticket sales there are. How many people are traveling versus yeah. within like one state radius? I, what I see on our side is I see makers are definitely getting fatigued. Mm-hmm. Okay. And collectors are getting fatigued. This matters <laughs> in different ways, but it very much matters. Mm-hmm. I think that what I'm seeing is I'm seeing shows with like very good rosters. And then I'm noticing collectors uh, who are not making the trip to this show. Mm-hmm. Whereas a few years ago or a year ago, whatever, it would have been a, a no mess scenario. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I've talked a lot about like, my love of our industry. And so like my concern is if, if makers are feeling like they have to be at a show every month or something and collectors are wanting to support and like spend time and there's like a burnout scenario on this, I just see it as like cannibalizing itself. And Mm -hmm. I don't know that any of the show promoters talk to each other. I don't know that there's any thought process around, I mean, because this is kind of like a goose with a golden egg. As a maker, the fact that someone will get on a plane and fly to a city to like hang out with you and spend money as an industry or as a maker is amazing. Like, we're mm-hmm. very fortunate. Mm-hmm. If it starts to get tiresome, like that hurts the, the entire yeah. industry. Yeah. Um, I, over the the last decade, I've really enjoyed the fact that there's like a yearly pilgrimage to say someplace like Atlanta. Right. Um, and I just haven't been attracted to the smaller shows. And I only think it's because of partly it's the market position we are, we are taking, it's the angle we are taking, but also I like the ability to like focus on what's going on in our house, in our shop for right. most of the year and then go out like with a bang, like to Atlanta, you know what I mean? Or to yep. Salt Lake or something. And it just be like this kind of very seasonal, very specific concerted effort that revolves around this one weekend. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like Christmas once a year. And right. if it was any more than that, it if wouldn't it was be Christmas once a month, anymore. You'd, you'd yeah. have a hard time. Yeah. But, I, but I also think like it's on us as makers to, pick the shows that make sense for us, not because there's some exterior pressure to go yeah. to the shows. Um, and I think if people are organically picking the shows that make sense, yeah, I think that any pressure being added should be like, there's like a self correcting. Yeah. I think in a perfect world, that's what happens. But I mm-hmm. think like, and I can look at this from both sides because like you and me go to the big shows for the same reasons. Now your reasons are different because you're actually in your manufacturing Mm-hmm. But at the point where it was just design, I might've been there with knives that I made, but I was also there because the companies were there, mm-hmm. right? They're not at the small shows. Me as a custom maker, I love small shows. Like I absolutely love to go someplace and spend six hours with a small group of people and like, um, have a couple beers and like be able to connect with people on like a more intimate one-on-one level, you know, for one night and go home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it, man, it just right now, like, I don't know, like it feels, it feels tumultuous because things keep getting added 
Nothing is getting removed. I think that as makers, like I even notice it, like I have FOMO because I don't want to like, I know that if I miss a show, I'm like, oh man, that's like someone else is there. Mm-hmm. I'm very confident in my reasons, right? Which are my family, my work. Like I know why I'm doing this. And I want, I know that I want to be able to do shows kind of that, that like you said, like they count, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Figuring out what that looks like, I think is tricky. Um, and this, this show where I'm sending product to, it's not without excitement because this is something I haven't tried. I have gone to shows without taking product. Like we've talked about that. And like the result is much better than I had kind of expected it would be. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is what I wanted to try, which is the exact opposite. It's like, if you have the product, but I'm not there. Is that still a, a benefit to anyone? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's just on my, it's on my mind a lot lately. So like if you are a maker and you are looking at the show roster and feeling like overwhelmed by that, I would just say like, don't try to do everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you are listening to this as a collector, Same advice, probably same advice. Like we love you guys Mm -hmm. and like, we appreciate the support, but like, I also don't want you guys getting completely run down just because you're feeling like you need to be at every show. Like, and I would love some feedback on this. Like, this is one, like if you guys can drop us messages, I want to see if other people are seeing this or have feelings Mm -hmm. around it. Cause like, it could just be me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, like I said, I don't have a good gauge of that. Um, Cause I hit the big ones and they feel big just like they yeah. always have. So I, I just don't have a, I don't have a good gauge, but it's really interesting to think about, especially as I kind of scale the business up. Um, it's market saturation is a natural part of capitalism. You know what I mean? Like their markets expose themselves, then they saturate themselves, then they soften. Then right. they, you know, it's like, it's a cycle. So, yeah. I mean, I guess and it's maybe not shocking. We're at that. Maybe there's going to yeah. be more, more and more shows added and then there'll yeah. be a correction. Um, some of this stuff like my tie to the economy, I don't know. Like, I don't yeah. know what's happened in the last few years that the, sh- like for years and years, the shows like kind of felt consistent. Yeah. And then can all I, of a sudden it was like this bump. Can I put my, put something on record Okay. that may be foreboding and may come <laughs> back to bite me. Okay. But like, I have turned over a new leaf in that I'm going to other than a few specific circumstances going to basically completely ignore the macro economy. Like, yeah, that's fair. Pretend that the macro economy is, is a non-existent ethereal might as well be aliens on a different planet because that's kind of what it is. Yeah. Um, I feel like we are talking about the macro situation too much. Um, as like, like culturally, culturally. Yeah. Yeah. Not just makers. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. I mean like, I think there's a, there's a phrase that's like, what happens in your house is more important than what happens in the white house and right. that kind of stuff. Like, I just totally agree with that. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, not, not to get, I don't mean that in a political way. I'm just talking about in terms of if you're trying to pay attention to every law that's passed, every tax bill, everything the federal reserve does, like you're missing opportunities that are right in front of you. Um, yeah. so that, that's, just, I've just, I didn't used to be that way. I used to watch all the videos on all the macro stuff trying to like see the trends and uh i just don't want to do it anymore (laughs) that essentially i mean that is true of many facets of life though 
Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, this is like, these are, these are like the classic tropes. Like if you're watching what your neighbors are doing, you're not doing what you should be doing. Yeah. You know, or if you're like, you know, trying to keep up or industry ever, you know, like Tom Cron always says, run your own race. I know he didn't like, it's not his quote, but it's who I think of saying it. And it's totally right. Yeah. Cause you can't look at, you can't watch social media and be like, Oh, they're doing this and this and this is super cool. You're better off just doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Totally, totally, totally agree. Um, and I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the economy as a whole right now, um, Mm. for that same reason. And I would say even, even the knife market in general, Yep, I would consider that another macro thing that I am choosing not to pay attention to. Um, I remember like anecdotally, there was a time when I was making knives before where I was just getting into it. I had been designing, but I just, this was like 2015 or 14, 15 probably. Um, and a collector I was like messaging on Instagram was like, Hey man, I don't know if it's a good time to get into making knives. Like it feels like the secondary is softening. Yeah. And that stuck with me for like two years. Yeah. Because every time I had a knife that I was like, Oh, it didn't sell instantly. I'm like, is, is this all softening? Like, am I walking into like a, uh, a mire that I'm like, Oh, that's be super worse. interesting. And I, I like dwelled on like one one comment. Not that it was like a negative comment in any way. Yeah. Just that it was like I'm taking something into account that right. doesn't really pertain to me. Yeah. Um, that I could like persevere through that I should have. Right. And so I kind of stalled a little bit on making at that point. Um, and it, there's even like tracing to like just one or two instances of that like could have slowed down my entire business progression. Yeah. Quite a bit. Like if I'm honest. Yeah. And it's like, I just don't think that's why well, to what and to what end? Yeah. Like the negative, like you and I maintain like a pretty like positive tone, I think mm-hmm. in general, like on the pod, but like also just in life, like we're not focusing on the negatives very often. I think a lot of times when pe- when you are starting something new, people will focus on the negatives because it's like the easy thing to like grasp mm-hmm. onto or like ca- it's cautionary and they, they're coming at it from a good place. Mm hmm. But yeah, I agree. Yeah. So yeah, I just, I'm going to worry about what's going on in my shop. I'm going to worry about what my customers want. I'm going to worry about my family and then like, you know, macro economy, greater knife market as a whole, like is what it is. Yeah. I think where I was at with that is more just like kind of cross-linking. Yeah. I think there's things that are tying in, right? Like, Mm -hmm. um, you're seeing like, okay, the high end knife market, like there's different price points, like where are those sitting right now? Like some of that stuff is selling slower. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's less discretionary spending. Like there's things that are definitely trends, but it mm-hmm. can also just be, uh, just tastes. It can be yeah. availability. There's and- so many things that as makers, we kind of not to like dwell on them, but you kind of just have them in your periphery. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah that I think are valuable. And the one that I feel right now is this thing around shows. And maybe, maybe there is a net positive, like maybe it's bringing mm-hmm. more people in. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's a good time for makers and collectors to be honest with themselves about like what their means and resources can provide because we would rather have people in the industry for a long time yeah yeah uh as opposed to like being like i can't do this it's horrible yeah yeah, yeah. burn out tired of this turn it into a rat race turn yeah. it into a rat race yeah. so no i, I agree know. with that yeah yeah okay 
That's it. Those are my two. Those are my two half no, measures and shows. There, there's another one on there that you put Ooh. on there. Uh, scope creep. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, this one, I think this one is for you because I look up to you in your efficiency. Okay. So scope creep as it having, relates, to- having never visited the shop, but you, you got to visit the shop and then see how much I, I will visit the shop very soon. <laughs> Can you hear me honking? You're right. Um, <laughs> Okay, scope creep, right? What is it? You start a project and slowly the scale of that project increases, okay? Whether that is uh, scaling numbers, uh, scaling um, the design, your manufacturing process, whatever it is. I suffer from this around almost everything that I do, right? So mm-hmm. if I go to sweep, I'll sweep and then I will notice the uh the coolant that i didn't clean and then it might be really easy to be like well yeah that's just cleaning but like if you have executive function issues it's it's a it's a constant thing so like i'm trying to train myself out of it Mm -hmm. i was curious if like when you start a project are you able to do you stay like fairly on topic um it's a good question I ha- I do have a tendency to to refuse to stop doing something until it's done. Um, my wife would not agree if I'm like caulking the bathroom that I need to be uh, finishing, even though sure. I tiled it Different. a long time ago. Yeah, but <laughs> but as far as like on the business side, I don't like leaving unfinished projects because it gives me anxiety to have projects unfinished. Okay, and so I I try to finish everything I start to the point that it's realistic. Um, I don't always do that, but how, give me a percentage. How often do you say, here's my project. How often do you actually complete the project as it was originally planned? Um, I would say a pretty high percentage. Like I I feel pretty, pretty comfortable number on it. Oh man, I, that's such a hard one to answer. Um, Are you visualizing a I don't pie know, chart? Two thirds or three quarters? I don't know. Okay. Okay. Seventy five percent. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe because I I can think of projects right now that I have that I have concept. Here's here's where I get into trouble is I conceptualize mechanisms that would okay. require extensive prototyping. Okay. And then I put them on sort of like a list. Like I even have a Trello list of like new product ideas. Okay. And there's a few down the list that are going to require immediate enough amount of like development and R and D that I've like paused them. And it seems to me that I have a tendency to want to do the easiest things first because it gives me the satisfaction of being able to complete them because I have a bias towards completing things. Sure. Okay. Um, So it's like, I want to choose the low hanging fruit because it gives me a completion loop. Uh huh. Um, and there's some people that like being on the same project for a lot longer, whereas I get really, I'm extremely impatient, I would say. And so it's like, I don't want to set goals that I know are too far away. You know what I mean? So maybe that's a bad thing. That's um, interesting. I don't know, but it's definitely, I don't know. I, this is, this is like kind of rolling into, uh, it's back into like process in general, like, this conversation had with my coach the other day, kind of around the way my hyper-focus works in relation to time. 
So if I'm in like a hyper-focused state, no problem, okay? This can be macro or not. And like, sometimes it is like a design, like I'm stuck in a design. I can't really detach. I'm aggravated if someone breaks my attention and this could go on for a week, okay? Um, there are, what I'm starting to learn is like on my side, there are periods that I'm almost starting to like put on a calendar and get a feeling for. So if I get interested in like right now, I'm so doing the gym, right? So it's five days a week. I'm in the gym. I've got a start date that I tagged. I want to see when my hyper-focus on this wears off. If I can start to like line that out, I think there's actually a methodology around like understanding that these periods of time shift and -hmm. like not fighting a weak position almost. Mm -hmm. The scope creep thing recently has been the hardest one for me kind of around this stuff because dude, it's like, I can't, if I, if I try to focus on one thing, it's like everything surrounding it is more interesting. Mm -hmm. So if I'm focusing on CAD, fixing up the CNC machine is more interesting. It's like, it just starts to expand and expand and expand or Mm -hmm. I don't know. So I that's like a muddy uh, explanation of this. And I'm not even sure I really understand where you're at because Mm. you're completionist. It sounds like, yeah, but you like to start with the easy thing. Yeah. But do you procrastinate the difficult thing? Uh, a little bit, I would say. Yeah. Are you like, are you like dopamining? Like, do you need, do you need it for you to be engaged in a project? Does it need to be like, give you a dopamine hit? Um, not totally. I, I, I think what it is for me is like, I mean, it might be that, but it feels, I feel like I operate like the path of least resistance is the, is the preferable path. And I generally see a lot of paths that I'll at least start down and be like, okay, this is, this is an uphill path. And I just went past a downhill path. I'm going to go back and go down the downhill path. And so I think the impression from the outside is like that I'm, that I'm moving quickly and efficiently, but it's a product of always choosing a lower friction path. You know what I mean? Okay. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I think that's part of what you're keying in on is like, I'm getting a lot of things done, but it's because yeah. I'm leaving a lot of complex things behind. Which is crazy because you're still doing complex things. Okay. What? Okay. So scope creep, I think in the traditional context is literally the scope of a project. Mm-hmm. When you start, so I'm going to make one knife. You, you're like making a knife and you're like, I can do this for a living and I'm going to make 10,000 knives. Like when you start projects at this point, does this, does your internal like expectation of scope, does that change or is it, are you pretty aligned? Oh man. Tricky question. (laughs) Maybe this, I don't know if this answers it or not, but it feels like, it feels like, I mean, one thing i mean i'll get back to like that the house thing that my wife and i do it's like she has a a more tendency to want to start more projects and balance a lot of projects um whereas i want to put them 
one after the other and have completion and then move to the other. But yes. the net, of, net effect is that I will actually completely neglect things that should be kept in balance because my brain operates in a one at a time way. Um, I don't know if that even is close no, to what it you're kind asking. Of, it kind of explains because that's my brain is working on multiple things all the time. Yeah. And it's, and it jumps. That's not always practical. Like as a small business owner, sometimes it's necessary and sometimes yeah. it's just like great skill. Yeah. But a lot of times if it's like, Hey, I have to do something. It's very important. It's not super exciting. That's those, that's where I'm trying to like figure out kind of like the, like levers and mechanisms to like engage that. Yeah. In a more focused way. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's just something that's par for the course. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think I actually don't think my brain jumps around a lot, but it's almost to the other side of the spectrum where it's a little bit of a problem where it's like, I, I'm not very good at multitasking. I think that's the best way to put it. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, I lean into, like I said, being completionist, but if I take on a really complex problem, it's going to take too long and be, not being able to multitask during that is going to cause a bunch of other things to have problems. Right. And so I think I've found what works for me is the shorter, the time frame, the time horizon of a project, the more acceptable it is that I neglect everything else while I do that thing. Does that make yeah, sense? Okay. That makes sense. Right. If it's one, it's like if it's thing. one day versus one year, that's a very yeah. different, uh, yeah. metric. Are you able to break down the longer term, more complex projects into pieces? Or do you feel that you, okay, I guess you answered that by saying you need to like start on something and finish it. Have you tried breaking them up into pieces? Um, I think by nature, I'm sort of ending up doing that. Um, there are times where I, obviously there, a piece is a piece, like you have to do this. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I tend to break everything down really small. Um, if I can, I think, I think small, like half day or one day projects, get it done. Um, I think that's like sort of how I thrive is just like a checklist item that should take like six to 10 hours, ignore everything until that's done. Then like come up for air and saw and put out the fires that started while I was doing that thing. And then do another six hour, six to 10 hour binge as fast as I can, you know, and then straight into it because is I'm, six I'm so hours bad your sweet spot. Yeah, honestly, like if, if something takes like two days, I start to get frustrated because I know the things that I'm ignoring because I'm so bad at multitasking. So it's like, like, for example, I was working on a, the first vacuum fixture this week and I was easily thinking I could do it in a day, but I, I ruined the first one and then I had issues with the vacuum pump and it turned into a two day ordeal. And by the end, like I was like, I had anxious frustration and <laughs> it's just because crawling. it's like, because it's like, I know how many things the the, yeah. the clock is ticking on all the things that I'm ignoring right now. Right. And I cannot balance this amidst those other things. I have to get it done. And so like this morning, Ooh. uh, I was like, I'm spending 15 minutes this morning to diagnose this pump. And if I don't get it figured out or do, it doesn't matter. I'm I'm completely ignoring this project and and coming back to it later because it's so unnatural for me to do that that I literally laid the night last night I laid in bed telling myself that tomorrow morning you're not going to think about that vacuum pump after 15 minutes 
how'd that I work? Like, it, I had to like, it actually ended up working, but it took like 12 hours of like mentally preparing to like set something down and walk away from it because it's so unnatural. But I just, there was too many things that I, after two days of working on that stuff, I could not continue. I needed to this ship is, knives, This so. is the point, right though, which is like, you can either, you can either accept like the way, just the way that you do things. And I think like there's people that are good at this or you can be curious about process as it relates to your abilities Mm -hmm. and then figuring out like how to make them work with like what you have to work with. Yeah. That one's pretty interesting. You're like, okay, I know exactly what this is going to do to me. I'm going to put a cap on it. If it's not fixed within this time, I'm going to walk away. Yeah. I don't know. Lately, like more and more, I'm interested in how people organize, like not to say flaws, mm-hmm. but like the things that they struggle with. Cause like yeah. we obviously yeah. like everybody has something in the shop that they struggle with. Like even if we only look at the shop, what is it? And it's like, one, do you care enough about that thing to like try to be creative in the way that you solve the problem? Mm-hmm. Or two, do you just accept it and move on? Like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's, I think the inability to multitask is probably the biggest thing that I've known for a quite a long time that I've had to, I think all these things I'm describing are not natural states, but they're coping mechanisms yep. for the inability to multitask. I'm excited for you to read Start With Why. Yeah. I want to know the big question. I want to know if you are a how or a why. Because mm. I can't answer. I know I can answer it for myself. Mm. I can't answer it for you. And I'm like okay. very curious what you uh, identify as. Have yeah. you ever done Myers-Briggs? I have not. That'd be another fun one. Yeah. It's a classic. Dude. It's like INFJ. Yeah. <laughs> okay. INFJ. Uh, you, you mentioned your fixture. I want to talk about that. Sorry if that was a crazy. No. No, that's it. No, that I like that conversation. That was good because I, I yeah, that's meaningful to dive into the depths of the human brain. Dude, our brains are, yeah. our brains are. I don't yeah. know what they are. They're messed up. They're complicated. House of mirrors, dude. Dude. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. All different. Yeah. Okay. Um, Fixture plate. Let's go back to normal manufacturing. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I went ahead and machined a piece of plastic and was aiming to create a vacuum fixture that would mold the kydex for an overland sport sheath and it's a trial run with it because the next model that we're coming out with is going to be exclusively vacuum form from the beginning and i just want to get a jump start on doing that i got it designed and programming it actually ended up being a lot more a lot more work than what i was anticipating because a knife that i programmed to make in the real world i programmed the scale I program the tang with the bevel and I can like glue on features onto the knife to mold kydex around it. But on this, I wanted everything integral into the solid block of plastic. So it's like, it looks like a fossil, you know, in the plastic, but Mm -hmm. it has to have the drain tube. It has to have blocking. It has to have the scale, the bevel, like all the chamfers. So it's like, it's like I'm reprogramming the entire Overland Sport, but all together into one little mass like that. And so it took a while to program. I ran it and made one error and drilled two holes that were problematic. So I re-ran it and I Ugh. think got a functional piece without okay. too much issue. 
Um, but I, like I said, I'm having a little bit of a vacuum issue, so I need to figure that out. Where did you go to learn, like to get to the point where you were confident making this fixture? Like, where did you go just for resources? Uh, I've seen a lot of like people on Instagram sharing their process about the vacuum forming and I've, I've known about it, but there's a few YouTube videos. Walter Sorrells did a video on it. Um, and I just kind of read and watched videos and then. I've been contemplating it for like the better part of two years, like ever since I started with Kydex. Um, so I guess I had a few game plan strategies that I was going to jump into. Um, but the way that I'm doing it is different because a lot of people, they create a vacuum fixture that the, or like base plate, right. That the fixture sits on and the, the base plate is what distributes the vacuum to the fixture. That's actually custom for that knife or whatever. Got it. Whereas I'm, doing a one piece fixture that integrates the vacuum distribution into the, so every fixture is a standalone and there's right, no base. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I think I like that better for my needs. Um, and it seems like it's going to work. We'll see. Okay. I'm curious. I was trying to think, is this mostly like holster industry? Like for uh, Kydex or uh, fire, firearm holsters are, are definitely where it's like most prevalent most, because yeah, most firearms prevalent. are very hard to mold with foam. Because right. they're they're so three dimensional, can't get a good clean mold. Yeah, and so vacuum forming is used all over the place. Um, but yeah, that seems like in the knife world, it's picking up steam fast. Seems yeah. like a lot of people are doing it. Dauntless Manufacturing. Um, yep. I talked to him, and he was awesome. Help, very helpful. And uh, right before I hit go and started machining on the first one, he was kind of just bouncing ideas off him to make sure I wasn't missing something. And it seems like I'm on a decent track. So. I nice. appreciate his help there. Um, one thing we're like probably about ready to wrap up. I just wanted to acknowledge that the industry, uh, lost another, uh, mm. great, uh, just wanted yeah. to, you know, pay some respects to, uh, Grant Hawk. Mm. Yep. Talk yeah. about a legend. Yeah. He's up the road from, I mean, a, you know, hour and a half from us, but, Gavin's one of my good buddies. Actually, he's the first designer that I really came to know. That's one of the A-list guys. And uh, yeah, they're quite the team. Yeah. So it's just unfortunate. But uh, yeah, I think he left a a good mark on the world. So, good legacy. Yeah. Talented son. Yep. Like, yeah. Yep. And a they're... lot of really cool designs. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People scratching their head around how he came up with things. Yeah. Yeah. Total. Total mad scientist yeah. type in every sense of the word. And yeah. yeah. Just, if you're not uh, familiar, do a little research. Um, yeah. it is, if you've it's ever a cool seen story. The older Hawk Hawk stuff, it's always a G and G Hawk. Yeah. It's Grant and Gavin and Gavin, I believe in the beginning of like the G and G Hawk days was like what, nine years old or something. Yeah. So it's, it was Grant, you know, kind of leading the charge and Gavin growing up inside the design game. Yeah. His dad. Yeah. Um, so it's, so, and just like absolutely two of the most like creative, talented, yeah, you know, d- like out of the box thinking, yep, designers, um, that yep. I think the industry has, you know, probably ever produced. Mm-hmm. Not to blow too much smoke, but it's true. It's, it's absolutely true. No. Yeah, yeah. As so. far as being like completely novel, I mean, they're yeah, they're close to being the best to ever do it, if not. The yeah, best. And just sheer volume, like. Yeah you look and you just don't understand how people can be like, for me, I'm like, I don't understand how people 
can be that creative, like how the yeah. brain works that way. Stop. Like one mechanism after another, just executed perfectly with like radical design and like, Oh man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Go do a little retrospective and check out some of the original, like G and G Hawk designs yep. and scratch your head. Yeah. So, all right. Big piece of news. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, man. That was on the top of my mind this week, but somehow yeah, I've been thinking about pod, it a lot. But so, yeah. yeah. All right, guys. Yeah. I'm going to call this one a wrap. Yep. Thanks Appreciate for listening. It. Yeah. See you, you guys. Have a good one. Peace.